Welcome to the Sacramentalist Podcast, a show where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. I'm Father Wesley Walker, coming to you today without the venerable Miles Hickson. Here at the Sacramentalist, we release a new regular episode every two weeks, but we still want to bring you content on those off weeks. So Father Miles and I decided to do something new. From now on, most of the time, we'll put out interviews, readings, soliloquies, or other things we deem useful in between our regularly scheduled programming. I also do apologize if there's some poor audio quality today. This is the first time I've recorded in my home where we have a 13-month-old son and two dogs. So if you hear any of their noise, I'm sorry. To kick off this new segment, we're thrilled to have special guest Reverend Dr. Scott Harrower, a PhD from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and an associate professor of theology and history at Ridley College in Australia. He's also an Anglican minister and author of the new book, God of All Comfort, A Trinitarian Response to the Horrors of This World, published by Lexham Press. Scott, thanks for coming on. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Father Wesley. I um, listen to the show and I'm a big fan, so uh, I feel like one of those uh, first-time, long-time callers, you know? (laughs) That's right. Perfect. (laughs) Well, we're glad to have you. Now, before we dive into the book, I'm a bit perplexed, and you're going to have to explain Vegemite to me and the rest of us lowbrow Americans. No, no, no worries. Uh, There is a very good reason why you Americans aren't aware of Vegemite, and that's because it's the gunk that's left down the bottom of beer barrels once you've brewed beer. So if you would like to eat that black sticky substance, call yourself an Australian and go for it. But if you want to just ignore it, that's fair enough too, because it's pretty rough on the taste. We raise our kids on it. It actually turns out it's quite good for you. But it's, it's, uh, it's rough on the palate, put it that way. Okay. Well, when you connected it to beer, that sound made it sound better to me. It just <laughs> yeah, looks sure. it looks kind of like burnt Nutella to us. So yeah, sure. And, and I mean, it it really is very very salty. Okay. So if you cross burnt Nutella with salted herring, you're heading in the right direction. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, now I'm gonna have to try it. Also. I, I'd be remiss if I if I didn't ask you if you support a uh, footy team, an Australian rules football team for yeah, okay, the so here. Yeah, sure. Um, it's it's a great fast game, but I'll tell you what the best thing to do is, in addition to supporting a local team, I support the Hawks. The best thing to uh, follow are the weird events that happen. So, for example, there's a raging controversy right now where one of our players climbed up a goalpost and did stupid things. Um, that's what makes the league great is all the other stuff that goes with it. So. <laughs> that's understandable. Yeah. We were just talking before it started about hockey, which... Out of all the oh, American sports, has similar uh, antics and things. Yeah, sure. And that's, that's what makes sports great, isn't it? That's it's right. Like people getting together and having a fun time. Exactly. Exactly. I love it. So uh, I am curious on the book cover and, and in the book, God of All Comfort, you don't really go into a ton of personal experience or anecdotes or that's anything right. like that. Yeah. But on the cover of the book, your your bio mentions that you've had experience in medical research and trauma rooms. So I assume that experience has impacted your vision for the book some. Could you talk a little more about that, about how that how your background kind of fits into your research here? Yeah, sure. I uh, deliberately didn't put in too much personal stuff because one of the big ideas behind the book um, is that people experience uh, horrors and trauma in different ways and respond to them in different ways. So I didn't want to give the impression that I lived um, a remarkable life in in any way, really, um, because it is true that horrors and trauma happen uh, to us us all in different ways. Um, But in terms of uh, the medical experience, um, working in uh, the hospital sector was very significant for my understanding of horrors. I first began by working in accident and emergency rooms. And I guess the thing that struck me there was when people come in, it's very clear that those who care for them, so a relative who might bring in a a daughter with, um, say, a dislocated knee or, or even severe tonsillitis, both the mother and the daughter are an extremely alien and strange circumstance. A hospital, they've lost control over being able to care for one another. And as a Christian, I recognised that there was something fundamentally unnatural about that state. That God has made us for shalom uh, to be perfect images of himself. And when we're suffering and in uh 
emergency rooms in hospitals uh, or in surgery after, say, falling off a motorbike or getting thrown through a car window, we're in a very unnatural circumstance and that causes fear and all sorts of trauma responses from everybody involved. After working in accident emergency, I then um, moved on to work in uh, labs where we did research connected to people who were coming in uh, with uh, live um, heart attacks. And when we opened people up, it was very clear that there's a lot of damage done to the body um, due to the way that we live these days. So you have big, floppy, unhealthy hearts, blocked arteries and so forth. And as a Christian, I also realised, yeah, that after the fall, um, we're not just impacted psychologically and emotionally by suffering, but actually even physically, our bodies are distorted, um, they're distended, they're bloated, um, they're not right. So the medical experience really helped me to understand that as images of God, we're living in a very alien circumstance and that it's very difficult for families um, to care for them. Um, I, uh, I remember probably the worst experience I ever had in a hospital was having to call uh, a lady to let her know that her husband had died and I remember she just wailed on the phone and it, it was just a, a kind of a grief and a pain that I thought was unfitting for a human being made in God's image and so far away for the beauty, from the beauty and the goodness and the truth for which we're made. And I think that that uh, deep experience of being involved in, in traumatic uh, situations and caring for the traumatized has very much shaped my book, yes. Mm. So then kind of the maybe the second stage of that question would be coming from that background and into ministry as an as an Anglican priest um, and, and college professor. So you're dealing with students, you're dealing with uh, with Christian people um, and through counseling and preaching. How have you found the, your research to be pastorally helpful? Um, I think it's made a big difference. I think being aware of the fact that people go through horrors and have traumatic responses should generate empathy um, in us, Wesley. Like we should be good listeners to people because we're aware that life is taking place in the context of the devastation, not the Garden of Eden and not in heaven. And that means that many things will go wrong and a lot of things that go wrong aren't spoken about. And that means that there's deep shame that goes together with awful events. Um, so it means that we need to be good listeners. We need to be alert uh, to the fact that there's often a lot going on under the surface to people. So one thing that I'm very deliberate about um, in my role at Ridley College as a lecturer is also mentoring. And I make sure that I'm a good listener and I'm alert uh, to what's going on within the lives of my students. Uh, I, I mean, a very practical way it pays out is um, you know that sometimes some students look like they're difficult people. Mm. Um, well, you know, they are relating in ways that are appropriate for someone who's hypervigilant, who's been damaged, who doesn't trust people around them, who has deep scepticisms about the world. They're not being difficult on purpose. They're, they're not trying to be a problem. It's just that the way that they have experienced reality means that they have big doubts about the goodness of God, of you, of their classmates, and even of their future. So they're, they're sitting there in your class or your mentoring group um, within a very dark cloud and very unsure about the way life is going to play out. So, of course, they're not going to respond in the way that healthier people will. So I guess it's generated empathy as the first step and also the need for prayer. When uh, we're relating with people that have had trauma responses to deep horrors, our hope in this life is that God may heal them. And this is where we can draw from Augustine, the idea that... Um, God is the physician, right? And that sin is, is a wound, a festering wound within us. And so we need to trust that God will heal and that will be directly and indirectly uh, through the church and so forth. But we need to be praying that God be at work in ourselves and in the work of others as the healer. And the third thing is, I guess, working uh, with people that have been severely uh, hurt is that the last thing that you and I want to do is to be people that perpetuate trauma and horrors in the lives of others. So sanctification for those of us who care is, is a huge issue. 
we, we must be patient. Um, you can't be impatient with someone who is finding it very hard to make decisions on the spot because their decision-making ability is severely impeded. You must be kind and show them the face of Christ because that's not the face that they have seen. They tend to see angry faces. They tend to see disappointed faces. Um, you need to show them Christ's heart, which is humble and gentle. So who you and I are and the body of the church is to the person who's experienced deep wounding is very important. Um, so that means that I, I take seriously um, mortification in my own life and deadening sin and trying to grow into Christ-likeness and putting on the new self. And also I pray that the church corporately would be like that too. It's one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The church should be a holy community um, that can hold these people. Um, so there, there's some three uh, important ideas in my approach, Wesley. Yeah, all those are are really, really good and, and necessary for us as, as pastors to think about. I, I've been teaching for two years now at a middle and high school, and I can see the same thing in many of the students who I deal with where once I find out about their family situations or, you know, past experiences they've had where it really sheds a whole new light on how I might engage with that student in the classroom Absolute. versus, Absolute. Uh, you know, not knowing that. So, yeah, absolutely sure. helpful. Sure. And, so you know, that's part of wisdom, isn't it? Mm, yes. You know, as you and I grow gray hairs, it's it's being in ministry with people. You just learn these things. Um, and what I was trying to do in the book is to offer some paradigms for what you're looking for in the experience of horrors that people might have been through and what trauma responses are. That way, those of us who are trying to grow in wisdom have these paradigms for thinking about what may have happened in a person's life and what's the ongoing aftermath. That's right. So actually, up to this point in the conversation, we've used three terms that you also talk a lot about in the book that are important probably sure. for our audience to understand. So the first being shalom, uh, the yeah. second being horror, and then the mm. third being trauma. Could you just right. offer our audience a, a brief definition and explain maybe how those three are connected to each other? Yeah, sure. Sure, no worries. And I like the way that you've arranged them because there's sort of a logic um, of how sadly one flows onto the other. So shalom is a context of wholeness and flourishing. Um, it means peace. And one of the big ideas that we see in the biblical prophets is that God is the one who creates us uh, to live in shalom, in wholeness and peace, in righteousness. And in the Garden of Eden, we see um, what shalom looks like uh, truly. God amongst his people, God's people relating well to him, each other and creation, an absence of any kind of affliction um, on people. And also those relationships are appropriate to the kind of being that persons are. So shalom is about people flourishing according to their kind in the same way that the animals were to flourish according to their kind. This is God's good design, um, a true design, a beautiful design for human beings. And so that's that's what the Bible opens with, this scene of wonderful shalom and God's good intentions for us. Horrors is a way of speaking about the problem of evil. Horrors refer to the fact that there's a vandalism of shalom, as Plantinga puts it, that human beings have transgressed uh, their role, they have breached into the realm of God's authority, they, um, after the fall, relate to each other in ways that reflect the fact that death has invaded life. So what was whole and what was good has now become withered and worn away by the presence of evil, and that's malevolent actions, malevolent willing, and, and that brings about absences of what is good, and in their place we have distortions, we have replacements of good things. So we could think of somebody, for example, who has been in a car accident and instead of a hand, they now have a stump. Or we could think of a tooth that's become decayed. Instead of a good thing, you actually have a tooth with a, with a hole in it at the same time as having a deformity in the tooth. And so that is what horrors are. They're opposed to shalom. It's not a good thing. And in the place of that, which is good, you actually have something deformed and sick. And because we have to, all human beings relate to each other in a context where there are many horrors and you and I aren't what we should be and could be relationally, morally, and creatively, human beings relate to each other in ways that are immoral, 
we make inappropriate use of our creative abilities and relationally we do weird things we try to create uh, power relationships that help only one of us rather than the majority so that means that in the world as it is right now given horrors people are going to do terrible things to one another and experience terrible things as a response to horrors people have what's called a trauma response and a trauma response can be a response to really big things you might for example be walking down the street happily one day and then a fight breaks out in front of you and someone gets strangled and that's a hideous thing um that memory will haunt you uh, you'll wake up thinking about it it doesn't fit into your reality and so you have a trauma response to that hideous event and your life is changed it will raise doubts about um, how regular life is what what you can assume will happen today and tomorrow um, you, you lose confidence in the way things are but others of us may have trauma responses to um, seemingly smaller events uh, that others wouldn't respond to in such a way. And a lot of that has to do with your family background, uh, your personal makeup and how you're wired together. So, so in sum, the relationship between shalom, horrors and trauma is that shalom is the perfect state in which we're to relate to God and one another. Horrors are the invasion of life by death and the degeneration and wasting away of good things. And in their place, we have less good things or bad things. And trauma responses are the effect that experiencing horrors in ourselves or in others has upon us. That's really a helpful distinction between those, uh, especially trauma and horror, um, yes. understanding what, what makes those things distinct, but yeah. related um, phenomena. So uh, I, I sort of experienced two extremes when it comes to, <clears throat> as a pastor, dealing with people who have undergone trauma. In my seminary education, I remember having a professor and a pastoral leadership class say, yeah. He never really deals with people uh, with their issues. He always sends them right. to a therapist. So he's got a long right. list of therapists in the area uh -huh. who he can refer to. But then I work currently at the parish where I am with a priest who is also a psychologist and therapist. And so right. he often sure. brings those methods into the pastoral role, which I, I yeah. think he does very well and is a really a blessing to our congregation. Um, mm. But I am curious in general, uh, with the rise of trauma studies and therapy in helping people in these situations where they're experiencing trauma and uh, because of horrors in their lives, how should we delineate between the role of clergy people, maybe clergy like me who have no formal training in Mm -hmm. psychology or therapy and the role of the therapist? Sure. I think in order to answer that, a theological answer is that God has created human beings for relationship with one another and for morally right and creative relationships. So that means that from the outset, those of us who are united with Christ, indwelt by the Spirit and growing in Christ-likeness, should have a role in the care of those who've experienced grievous uh, horrors or even commonplace ones. So let's say we're dealing with um, a mum who's been subject to domestic violence. The last thing that she needs from her pastor is for him to show very little interest in caring for her and showing very little love for her and handing her a business card of a therapist. I think that that is damaging. It says, I'm not interested in you. Your life has little value to me. And it communicates a lack of care, which she has experienced at the most profound level because her most intimate partner is now being violent towards her and the kids. Now, following on from that, we need to go, yes, part of the pastor loving that person is to get them the best help possible. So that means to act righteously with respect to this person who is a survivor of domestic violence, we need also to get them very good professional help. So we need both and we need it to be done very well. So there's a very important role for the pastor in the life of, say, a domestic violence survivor in visiting and being present to that person and the children. Because what visiting and being present to the family does is that it shows them that I am here on behalf of Christ to show you God's love. 
and the presence of other Christians in the lives of those who've been traumatized is the presence of God. So God mediates his care to those who've been abused through other images of himself, which makes a ton of sense theologically, doesn't it? Yeah. And ministers who should be mature and growing in Christ-likeness should be present in the life of those who are traumatized because they should be amongst those Christians who are best able to show the face of Christ and the care of Christ to survivors of domestic violence, for example. And in addition, Wesley, I think this is important, is that ministers are in a unique position because what they can do is that they can bring God's special revelation, God's word of wisdom and care to bear on the life of survivors. And they can say unique things to do with God's love and care that a therapist can't. So I think that the role of the the minister is invaluable. And I think that one of our problems today is the... um, outsourcing of Christian care from the pastor to professional psychologists who can only give us part of the equation. Um, The intention behind this book was to bring the theological and the psychological and social together. And that's one of the things I appreciate about the book so much Mm -hmm. is it's it's holistic in its uh, purpose. And I think that's really helpful, uh, especially for those of us who maybe have part of it, you know, ministers with no psychological or or, um, medical training, but to help us fill in the gaps. Um, So that that was helpful. Sure. Can I just say one more thing is that as Christians, one of the things that uniquely qualifies a priest is if they can reflect the heart of Jesus to someone. So your qualifications to care for those who have suffered from horrors don't have to be professional, psychological, social qualifications. Like my wife's a social worker. I don't need to be a social worker in order to demonstrate the humble and gentle heart of Jesus as I'm patient, kind, thoughtful, good, perseverant with someone who is an abuse survivor and a drug addict. What I'm saying is the Holy Spirit qualifies us to care. And that is something that's missed. God qualifies Christians to care for one another because images of himself are visible icons of who he is to one another. And that's a very important piece. It's not that Christians are wholly unqualified to care. That's a myth, mate. Yes. You are qualified to care by the Spirit. Exactly. You can care to a certain extent, and then we need to think about professional psychologists, social workers, medication, and so forth. But please let's not forget the fact that you are qualified to care. One of the um, deepest experiences of my life was um, I belong to a mentoring group that meets every year in Germany and back in Australia, and I called the guy, Roland, who uh, actually wrote on the back of the book, and, and I said to Roland, I was going through a very hard time. And I remember him um, saying to me, I, I am with you in this. Mm. Um, ich bin bei dir. And that that was just so profound to think that in this dark time, I'm not alone. There's another Christian who's with me mm-hmm. and that this Christian can bring the Psalms and words of comfort um, with me and that they're praying for me and prayer makes a difference in history and that, that they actively are caring for me. It makes such a difference and it just takes one Christian to care to make a huge difference in people's lives. So please let's not give up on people. I guess that's what I'm saying. Exactly. Yeah, no, and I, I love that answer. I think that's perfect. We have such a tendency um, especially in the West to over specialize everything to the point that we feel a need to outsource when in reality that is sometimes not sometimes the worst thing we could do um, when we can't but also ways I think that we are uh, we have fallen into risk management yes we don't we don't want to have the risk of being involved with difficult people because we're afraid it's going to backfire it's going to cause complications a lawsuit perhaps you know there's a there's a fear element as well as a professionalization and jesus has a lot to say about fear and i wonder whether we could be a little bit more willing to fully give ourselves to christ and trust that he will care for us as we care for others and that he through his community will 
enable us to do things that perhaps we thought we couldn't do. So I think that there's a fear element as well. Yes, that's right. Yes, the church could be a little bit more daring these days. I, I agree. Yeah. So on page 40 of the book, so if you have your book at home, you can open there. Uh, But you say horrors degrade and downgrade the ways that images of God may flourish as relational, moral and creative persons. Acts of horror, witnessing these and being victims of them all contribute to stripping away an image's capacity for being a a human kind of person by damaging the relational, functional and moral capacity that come with being an image bearer. And the book is obviously aimed at a Trinitarian theology, but I am curious, to what degree does our Christology, particularly our view of the atonement, uh, need to incorporate this concept of trauma and horror? Sure. Um, So I think our Christology more broadly needs to deal with uh, horrors and trauma. And one of the key things I see is that in the incarnation, what you see in Jesus is God himself coming down to meet people. And when you see what he does primarily is that he heals. So he brings restoration to that which is deformed, um, isn't right. And he does that physically. He also restores people relationally to one another. He restores people to God. So that's a relational aspect of his healing. And he also comes as a great moral teacher who wants to restore us morally to God and to create communities of truth, peace, justice, and love. So I think all of who Christ is, is dealing with the consequences of horrors. He's wanting to heal these precious images that God loves. And the incarnation itself is a profound affirmation of human beings at the outset. So this one, the second person of the Trinity who takes on a human nature, he comes, he affirms humanity. He then begins to heal the various realms that have, of humans that have been damaged by horrors. And then he gives himself as a sacrifice on the cross for our sins, which means that we're no longer horror makers in God's eyes, because that's our problem. We're horror makers with respect to God and with respect to others. What we do with respect to God is that we have introduced um, death and evil and violence into this world and power inappropriately used. So we've perverted our relationship with him. We can't damage him in the way that we damage others, but we certainly have perverted relationships with other people that are profoundly damaging, and that's what sin is in large part. So as horror makers, we have a terrible problem with God, and how could it be that we're going to be reconciled to God as horror makers, yet he be righteous? And that's what the atonement is about, this wonderful exchange. Jesus takes our sin for all our horror making, which, believe me, mate, is totally deserved the wrath against horrors because horrors are awful and we become righteous we receive jesus righteousness because he's the one faithful human being so the atonement is this wonderful exchange which we become righteous our guilt is dealt with our sin is dealt with and we no longer are horror makers the old self but we put on righteousness um we put on the new person so the atonement point is the pivot point for us changing from horror makers into those who are being turned into Christ-like images of God once again. It's it's wonderful. The the atonement is a key point. Yes. Yeah, I love that. I've been thinking a lot about um, the ideas of modeling and mirroring, especially because of our son, who's only 13 months old, who copies everything we do. And, uh, And so it's interesting, Christ on the cross. I mean, he does all those things um, that you just listed, but he's also showing us this kind of new way to be human that yeah, I think sure. can exist uh, above uh, those horrors in a, in a sense. Um, and so, uh, I, absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah, I love, I love those implications of, of the Christ story, especially when we talk about just how horrible those horrors can be. Absolutely. And I mean, we got to remember that the one who goes to the cross, who um, takes on our sin and guilt and shame and horror making is the one who also showed what it, what he's about when he washes the disciples' feet. Mm. Um, He's a servant. And this ties in with what Paul says, that you have been, in Galatians, you've been set uh, free, but it's a freedom to love and serve the other, to do good. And Paul hammers 
on that point about being set free to do good in Galatians 6. So that's what your son should be seeing in in all the Christians in your church is people who are doing good things, shalom-like things in this world of the devastation that um, function as signs and sacraments that point towards a greater reality, which actually has broken in already and will fully come. So it's not a, um, a fantasy to which we point, but we actually point to something real that we're participating in right now. That's Yeah, that's great. I am curious. This is um, not something that's addressed in the book specifically, mm-hmm. but as I was reading it, I was considering it um, because you discuss a lot about the horrors um, that cause victims to seek unnatural replacements for relationships. Yeah. The the thing, and this actually is the flip side to the, to the modeling point that I was making. So um, because of sin, we're born into a world where horror, it is unnatural, but in a sense also natural. It's something that we see from a young age and grow up and then reproduce in various ways. Definitely. Um, through mirroring behavior that we have been exposed to. Um, So one scenario that struck me is just how people who have been abused can become an abuser because of that um, situation. And and I guess to what degree in those kind of situations where horror is almost, it's almost something toxic in the environment that we're exposed to, to what degree we should think about moral culpability in those situations, not wanting to limit the severity of a particular horror, but also understanding that people are kind of caught up in this bigger system of horror as well. Mm, Sure. So let's, let's think of a concrete example. Um, I live in an area um, outside of Melbourne where there's a lot of um, use of amphetamines and we see a lot of violence. So for example, road, rage is is a big thing. It's an unpredictable thing and it can happen any minute, right? Uh, Let's say we have uh, a perpetrator, somebody who violently assaults someone else um, in a road rage incident. Is that person morally uh, responsible for their activities? Yes, they're made in God's image. We live in a morally responsible universe. However, it is inappropriate given that person's background um, of domestic violence, uh, possibly he was raped um, by a a close family member, an uncle, um, and who is himself now an addict, given that context, we might say he never had a chance not to be someone who affects deep horrors on others. However, he's still morally responsible. So you need to take the context into account, but his actions matter. Why? Well, because he just put someone's teeth through the back of their throat. Um, He inflicted horrors on someone else. So he is responsible for that damage. Now, the larger picture, though, is that there's actually been a series of failings of the community where I live going back about 40 years. So we're all involved in this picture. And the real call for us is to create communities where it would seem impossible and absurd in which someone would beat the hell out of someone else because they were impatient in in the traffic. Like, that's, that's insane that we do that, mate. But it's actually what goes on and so there's been a community failing and we need to own that failing and what that means is that when this person is um, taken to court that we actually give him opportunities for rehabilitation re-education and that we don't just punish him punishing him and putting him in a hellhole won't serve anybody but what will help is him joining for example um groups for perpetrators which have um actually thankfully our government is supporting and my wife's been involved with these groups where um they're for men uh, where they um are to learn what it is to be a healthy man and what it is to relate healthily to other people but you know These dudes, they need to learn that. Um, You can't expect people from hideous backgrounds to know it. They have adapted, they have survived, and basically, as you know, survival is um, the fastest, strongest, and the one who can marshal other bullies to their cause. So that's, that's how they live. So when they're trying to punch your lights out, mate, there's a whole history of a community that's actually involved in that. So I think we need to um, be nuanced in how we understand moral responsibility and also recovery um, to do with the um, justice system. Yeah, that's that's a helpful way to think about it. That balances out the need for understanding context and the need for some sort of 
punishment, but one that doesn't lose sight of the telos of punishment, which should be yeah. a kind of restoration. Yeah, we, absolutely. We're not always great at that in the United States. No. <laughs> well, well ne- ne- neither are we, because the knee-jerk reaction is to point the finger um, to blame and not to really think about the larger context. That's right. Yes. So one thing you do in the book, and I found it fascinating because I I really enjoy the study of hermeneutics and um, Mm -hmm. reading different perspectives on that, is that you engaged with what you call a paranoid interpretation or the shattered lens hermeneutic. Um, Could you could you just define or explain those things for our audience who may not be familiar with that? Sure. Um, So for those of us um, who have been. exposed to um, horrors. So uh, we may have been um, treated appallingly at different times and carry the effects of a trauma response with us. What's going to happen is that, say you've been betrayed terribly by your mother um, and given up to an uncle who treated you badly, you will have memories of that event that you are unable to integrate into your sense of life as something that is ordered and predictable and a good thing and you'll be haunted by the events that happened. That means that as you perceive the world and you interpret meeting other people, you interpret trying to get a job, that you'll have these assumptions that things can all of a sudden fall apart. So it means you probably will engage less deeply with people. Uh, Morally, you might hold back from intervening. You'll have less of a sense of agency in the world. And so that means that all your life is interpreted through this paranoid lens and by that I mean you're anticipating what you've already experienced to happen again and it makes sense if I've experienced deep betrayals by people and it's happened a few times with hideous outcomes well the most sensible thing for me to do is to expect that that's going to happen again so to act in self-protective ways that is one way of reading the Bible and reading the world. And in my Bible studies with trauma survivors, I've seen that they pick up things in the texts to do with betrayal and horrors that I hadn't noticed Mm. and that they don't expect Jesus to be good. And there's a key moment in um, Matthew's gospel where Jesus asks Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter says, oh, you know, you're the Messiah, the son of God. And Jesus goes, this is amazing. And then he makes a contrast. He says, this was not revealed to you like by flesh and blood. Rather, it's revealed to you by my father. So Jesus makes a difference between a flesh and blood hermeneutic or approach to the world and an approach to the world that is a gift by God the Father. And so I found that helpful in thinking about people recovering from traumas because I think that very much as you're recovering from trauma, you see the world through a lens of flesh and blood. You know, this is how people tend to behave. It's bad. It's bloody. You know, it's very damaging. And in a sense, God needs to set us free from that hermeneutic, from anticipating that bad things will happen again. And that's basically the way it's going to play out forever. Rather, God gives us an interpretation of life, including of who he is, that is a gift, that is Trinitarian reading, that's a reparative reading. It repairs how we see the world. And it means that all of a sudden we can have expectations of hope, of love, of shalom in our relations with others. And and even more crazily, we can actually be active in not only defending ourselves and being purposeful in the world, but actually helping others. That's the thing, is that when we see life through this new lens of God, the healer, the physician, then suddenly we know that we can be set free to be a good thing for other people. And that's a wholly different worldview. And you you show the contrast between those two kind of ways of reading in the book by engaging mm-hmm. it with Matthew's gospel. Uh, yes. First, you do the horror reading where you engage... Yep that you, you sort of take on the persona of the shattered lens hermeneutic and then you counter it with a sort of blessed reading. Yeah. Can you just talk a little bit about how that works itself out in the first gospel in particular? Yeah, so so what I wanted to do was to give a demonstration of what a horror reading looked like after I'd argued for it. So basically with the paranoid reading, yeah, I do. I take on the persona of a trauma survivor and I read the gospel noticing um, those particular aspects that would stand out to someone who has been through horrors and who is aware of horrors in the world and has experienced trauma. So for example, rather than noticing the birth of Jesus as a good thing for the world, you'll notice how in Matthew's gospel, Mary, unlike Luke's gospel, um, she 
uh, is impregnated by the spirit, which is very strange. She doesn't respond in joy. She seems confused and afraid. And then very shortly afterwards, we have a massacre of all of these innocent children by Herod. So Jesus coming into the world involves trauma, confusion for Mary. They have to be on the run, become refugees in another country. They have to leave all their relationships behind. And at the same time, the coming of Jesus means the death for all these little boys. Uh, that's what a horror reading is about. It notices things in texts related to horrors. And so basically I work through all of Matthew's gospel uh, pointing out those dimensions, right? And this comes from pastoral experience with people, so I'm not just making this up. And then having done that, uh, it's very gloomy, very dark, but that's the world in which many people live. I then think about well, what's a blessed interpretation of Matthew's gospel um, led by the Spirit, which means reading this gospel in line with the, the church. So I do a Trinitarian reading because we are Trinitarian Christians in light of the creeds and the great tradition. And then I point out actually that Jesus coming into the world and what he does is a fantastic thing given horrors, given trauma. He is the God who deals with horrors and with trauma for the good. So I try to show the contrast between those two readings. Firstly, for those who have not suffered, to give us empathy towards how others might read the Bible. And secondly, for those who have suffered, to say, hey, mate, there might be another way um, to interpret God's actions in the world. And that these, the way that God works in the world is to offer us safety, a sense of self, and also to guide us towards a kind of community in which we may be re repaired and healed, and we may then act on behalf of the physician to care for others. Yes, and that's a uh, that's a really wonderful part of the book. That's helpful because it provides, I think, tangential examples of 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 that of what it looks like to um, to see the world and read scripture through that lens, but also mm. what's necessary to kind of counter counter it and and bring in that that blessed component so i thought that was one of my favorite parts of the book um partly sure. because you chose matthew to engage with partly because it was this really interesting hermeneutical exercise which you do very well because uh, at the end of the horror reading if you stop there uh you might be pretty uh depressed and paranoid sure. <laughs> so, yeah, um, but, but let's remember job. that the, that the value of doing that is it will help you get into the mind of someone who's experienced horrors and trauma and whose worldview is fed by zombie series and series about possession and ghosts and demons, and they watch Game of Thrones, and that's their main cultural touch point these days. Um, and so, you know, you're, you're dealing with a worldview that is unusual to you and I, but commonplace. Yes. Yeah. That's true. Mm -hmm. So safety, story, and community Mm -hmm. play a really important role in the last portion of the book. Recovering sure. all three of those things is key to trauma recovery. Um, yeah. So could you riff for a minute on the importance of those three things, safety, story, and community, and how it is that they relate to one another? Yeah, sure. So um, in the psychological literature, so here we're dealing theologically with uh, psychological and social literature, they make the point that in order for a person to live well in the aftermath of horrors and trauma, so it's never like you go back to your life as it was, that can't happen, but in the aftermath of horrors and trauma, what you need to live well and meaningfully is a sense of safety, that um, it isn't the case that at any moment your life will fall apart again. So a sense, sense of safety, a sense of connection to a community, and then also a sense of how what happened to you fits into the larger story of your life. So basically what I do is I show that God is uh, someone who is trustworthy. He is the safe God, and that means he's morally good. And that's actually a huge point to make because people have experienced the world as a bad place. So how is God morally good? So it's about his character, and it's about God bringing about good things in the world. And what I try to point out is that what God does is that he offers himself in the Son incarnate, and the Son incarnate is the one safe person with whom we can engage, we're united by the Spirit, and he is the beginning of the restoration of safety and healthy relational aspect of being an image of God. Jesus is the one person we can trust. He's the one person who is with us at all times. And so that means that God has offered us a way to truly be safe. It's objectively true that he 
the second son, that the second person is incarnate in the son and is a safe person with whom we can engage through the spirit. So that's one way that God um, offers us safety and the restoration of the relational aspect of who we are. God also gives us the opportunity to understand uh, what's happened in a larger story um, of humanity, of ourselves, and it's a story that's oriented towards um, connecting with other people and ultimately the restoration of Shalom. So what has happened to us is a hideous thing, but it's not the only thing and it's not the greatest thing. It's actually one thing amongst many and many great things are coming your way, such as being glorified and heaven and so forth. I don't major on those, but I do say that you've been brought into community with God and he's present with you. And that is true. And we see that um, exemplified in the life of other Christians around you. So you don't just have safety, but there's a new story. You're a child of God incorporated into the church. And finally, I try to point out that by part of being in this new community, developing a new story includes the fact that you can have purpose and meaning, again, you know, qualified, of course. And that means that God will then allow you to be someone who works for the good, even if you just have two or three relationships within those relationships. So you can understand your story is ultimately being a good for you and of being of value for others. So we have safety, a restoration um, of the self and a restoration into a community. Naturally, all those things are gradual. They happen very slowly and they need to be helped. But that's that's where the book goes towards the end. Well, that's wonderful. And thank you so much for writing the book, for being willing to talk to us today about the book. I I really enjoyed uh, really enjoyed working through it and probably we'll work through it one more time before I uh, put it back on the shelf. So thanks uh, for reading it. I appreciate your interest. Of course. Of course. So to close, I I wanted to steal something that they do on another podcast that I really like called Crackers Crackers and Grape Juice. So Uh they ask their guests 10 kind of lightning round speed questions from inside the actor's studio. So I thought it might be helpful for our listeners to get to know you a little bit better. Okay, um, so, so, number one, what's your favorite word? Uh, my favorite word is, well, it's a phrase. It's, I love you. Mm, I love it. Yeah. Least favorite word? I think my least favorite word is is probably Schrecklichkeit, which is a German word for horrors. Mm. And it's just very harsh. Yes, it sounds <laughs> it horrible. Sounds, yes. sounds horrible, yeah. Uh, what turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? I think uh, kindness is the thing that, that really makes uh, me feel that there are possibilities for creativity, for hope, and for good in the world. And when I experience the kindness from someone that I trust, that really uh, is evidence that there are possibilities for moving forward uh, creatively uh, in the world. That's wonderful. So what turns you off? I think what turns me off is um, pride that I see in myself, pride that I see in others. I really dislike it when people try to set up clicks and set up hard boundaries between us and them. Uh, When the intent is to be self-serving, I just don't understand that. And that, that is just very unhelpful. And I, it actually gets me. It's very unjust. It's anti-realist. It's nothing to do with who we should be as Christians. And it's driven by inappropriate fears. Mm. That really turns me off. Yes. I feel Mm. that, especially, uh, our current political climate, but that's a whole sure. other podcast. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> What's your favorite uh, curse word? Well, I hope it's okay to say it on the show. Please yeah. beep it. You're probably really nervous right now. Please <laughs> beep it out. It's it's um bloody. So use it as an adjective. So like, what what what, what were they bloody doing? Or or I uh, can't bloody believe it. Um, get get bloody. Get on with it. You know, it's 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 like that. So I hope that's okay. Well, the but good news is. We don't really uh, bloody for us is really not a curse word, so oh, we, okay. we'll we'll allow it. We'll allow it. Okay. <laughs> what sound or noise do you love? Okay, I, and this is this is a little funny, but something I really like is listening. If I'm awake overnight for some reason, hearing the sound of my wife or kids sleep talking. It's really cute, and I know that they're safe, and it's like you get this sort of insight into the unconscious state, mm. and and um, yeah, and they're just talking away. I just love it. I, I don't know why, but that I, is amazing. It's, 
it, it's really special. Yeah. I had a roommate in college yeah. who would sleep talk a lot. And okay. one night he just listed off random words in alphabetical order. Wow. It was the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yeah, the it's human great. mind is a strange thing. It, it is really very strange. Is. <laughs> what sound or noise do you hate? Well, I mean, this does relate back to the um, experience in trauma rooms. There is a kind of uh, a, a screaming and a wailing that you hear in persons who aren't just in extreme pain, but it's the confusion that goes with it. They're, they're wailing because they're in terrible pain, but they're also confused by the fact that they are in such pain and they are out of control and at a loss. Uh, that is my the sound. I, and everybody who works in trauma hates that sound because uh, you know that that human is at, at the very, very bottom of human experience. Yeah. yeah, that's horrible. What profession besides your own would you like to attempt? You know, um, I would really like to work with kids um, in childcare. Um, so I, I would love to be the person um, when the kids get dropped off by their parents uh, who welcomes the three-year-olds and uh, reads them kids' stories. Uh, I, I love kids' TV, actually. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I would love to spend my days uh, reading the story of Peppa Pig and what's she going to do when she loses her red boot. You know, it's, I love uh, it. That's awesome. Our, we've been getting into the world of children's books with our son. and oh, that's great, huh? They're quite amazing. Yeah, they are. What uh, what profession would you not like to do? You know, I'm not very good administratively. Um, so me being an accountant would be a very bad thing for everyone involved. <laughs> yes, yes, I feel that. So last question. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I, I would love to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Like that would just be wonderful. But I'd love it to be prefaced by just hearing God say, uh, Scott, like that would be a confirmation of the fact that I am known by him. And mm. and that's what Jesus says, you know, like those who enter the kingdom are those who are known. So I just love the confirmation that I'm known to hear my name uttered by him. I love it. Well, everyone, go and pick up Scott's book, God of All Comfort, A Trinitarian Response to the Horrors of This World, put out by Lexham Press. Uh, Scott, are there any other projects you want to plug or promote ways for people to engage with you? Sure. Um, people uh, can feel free to message me on Facebook um, about the book. I'm happy to be in dialogue, and that's already started, which has been great. Yes. I do have a follow-up work, which is uh, The Relevant Trinity with Lexham Press as well, which is in line with the podcast. Podcast, which is to think about how God the Trinity is related to everyday life and what it might look to be persons who uh, give ourselves completely to God and to one another. So that'll be coming out. And um, I uh, look forward to engaging with people on that too. That's awesome. One other book too that I just bought that I would am very excited about reading is your uh, work that you edited with uh, Michael Bird. Uh, Trinity without hierarchy, sure, claiming sure. Nicene orthodoxy and evangelical theology. So that yeah. is another plug too um, that I'm Thank very you. excited yeah. to read. So yeah. maybe we'll have to have you on again soon to talk about that. Yeah, that book is intended um, to call people back to Nicene orthodoxy, and I'd love to have a conversation with you about it because what we try to do is show that even the strongest arguments against Nicene orthodoxy and for the subordination of the Son to the Father don't work and they're out of sync with the historical tradition. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to have a discussion about that. That, that is a, a pretty strong work, yes. That'd be great. Awesome. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of The Sacramentalists. Be sure that you like us on Facebook, where you can also reach out to us. We love to interact with you, and both Father Miles and I have been surprised and blessed by the rate uh, that you all are engaging with us. Uh, also, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcast. Uh, to finish today, uh, I thought, Scott, could you bless us with the ironic blessing which you quote at the end of the book? Sure, no worries. I'm happy to. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.